When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. I'm C.P. Leslie, the host of New Books in Historical Fiction, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Today, I'm speaking with Rhys Bowen about God Rest Ye, Royal Gentlemen, the latest in her historical mystery series featuring Lady Georgiana Ranach. When we meet Lady Georgiana in Her Royal Spiness, the first of the series, set in 1932, she is, in her own words, 34th in line for the throne. But despite her illustrious connections and her status as the daughter of the Duke of Ranach, Georgie is flat broke and unable to rectify that situation through work because women of the royal family are supposed to marry foreign princes rather than mingle with the hoi polloi. But by the time God Rest Ye Royal Gentleman opens in late 1935, her life has taken a turn for the better. November 25, 1935, Ainsley House, Sussex. I'm looking out my window on a misty November morning. A deer and fawn are standing at the edge of our woods, and a couple of hares just raced across the grass. It's hard to believe that this lovely place is now my home, and that my life is now so settled. I also still can't quite believe I am a married woman with a wonderful husband. Sometimes I want to pinch myself to find out if I'm dreaming, but then I don't want to wake up. Christmas is coming, the geese are getting fat, please to put a penny in the old man's hat, sang my housemaid Sally in a high, sweet voice as she brandished the feather duster over the portraits in the long gallery. I have never actually seen the value of feather dusters. All they seem to do is to make the dust fly off one surface and to land on another nearby. That was certainly happening at the moment. But then Sally was getting into the spirit of the season and dusting like an orchestra conductor in time to her singing. And now, please join me in welcoming Rhys Bowen. Hi, Rhys. Thank you for agreeing to talk with me. I'm really looking forward to this interview. Hello, Carolyn. Very nice to talk with you. You've written so many books that they didn't even list all of them in the advanced review copy I received. Uh, There are three mystery series uh, featuring Lady Georgina, Constable Evans, and Molly Murphy, and a group of standalone historical novels. Uh, We'll talk about Lady Georgie in a minute, but could you tell us a bit about Constable Evans and Molly Murphy? Yeah. um, Constable Evans was my first mystery series, and um, uh, really, it came to me in a flash why 
mysteries were always my favorite genre to read. Why wasn't I writing them? And I, coincidentally, I was telling a friend about my childhood summers in Wales and the experiences I had there in the small town with all the quirky characters and the people who really were called Evans the Meat and Evans the Milk. And she said to me, oh, this is really interesting stuff. Have you ever put it in a book? And I thought, oh, my goodness, I do know this place. So those those were mysteries, but they were also um, great fun to write about Wales and everything that met Wales meant to me. My mother's family is Welsh, so I, I had a lot of experience with Wales while I was growing up. So I was writing Constable Evans. Um, he was a police constable in North Wales in Snowdonia. And I really enjoyed writing them, but he was beginning to annoy me a bit because he was rather polite. And when his superiors were rude to him, he sort of went away with his head hung down. I wanted to write about someone who was a little more feisty, a little more um, uh, strong in justice, who, did, who wasn't always wise, who didn't always know when to step back. A little, little bit more like me, I have to confess, because I did spend a lot of my time growing up standing outside the door at school because I'd been rude to the teacher. Um, not because I'd been rude, but probably because I stuck up for somebody else in the class. So um, I thought I'd love to write a first-person feisty female, and where should I set that? And that was decided for me when I took a trip to Ellis Island. I had a free afternoon in New York. I jumped on a boat. I went to Ellis Island. I was completely unprepared for the emotional overload I felt. You know, I have no ancestors who came through Ellis Island. All of my ancestry is British. Um, but I was standing there, and I felt, these walls were screaming out that they had seen great joy and great sorrow. And I thought, I have to write about this place. And also, when you stand on Ellis Island and you look across and you can see the Manhattan skyline, it occurred to me that you are this close to America, but you can't go that final step unless the government says you can. And I thought, this is the perfect locked room mystery. And so Molly Murphy is an Irish immigrant who has to flee for her life because she's accidentally killed the man who's going to rape her. And she gets as far as England, and then she's given the chance to come to America using another woman's name. And I won't say why, because it comes out in the book. Anyway, she gets as far as Ellis Island, and while she's there, a murder occurs, and the name she is using shows up as the prime suspect. So um, that was my driving force behind Molly. And in Molly Murphy, I've now written, um, I'm, I'm on my 19th book. Now, now I'm writing it with my daughter, which is an absolute joy. And it's coming out and it's called Wild, Wild Irish Rose and it comes out in the spring and there will be more in the series. So all of those, you know, have been a lot of fun. Yes, I've really enjoyed those as well. Um, I was supposed to interview you, in fact, about one of them oh, years ago when I first started the podcast. And for whatever reason, it didn't work out. But I do keep up on them as well, um, even though Lady Georgie is my favorite, I have to admit. <laughs> I think so, she's probably my favorite too. But still. <laughs> yeah. What made you decide to write the standalone novels, given that you have uh, at least two current series? Um, well, one of the nice things about a standalone novel is you can come into someone's world and you can have one encounter there and you can go away again. St series are wonderful because it's like high school reunions or, or family reunions. Every time you go back, there are all your old friends waiting for you. So it's really lovely, but there are things you can't do in a series. You know, you can't go outside their environment and you can't have things happen that would be too shocking or too dark or whatever. So um, 
I had wanted for a long time to write about World War II. It was very meaningful to me. My father was fought in Egypt in World War II. I was born in the middle of it. Um, I don't remember because I was too young, but um, uh, it sort of haunts my subconscious. And when I read several years ago that a group of British aristocrats had been actively working with Hitler to try and bring down, um, uh, to help the invasion, I couldn't believe that. It really, it really hurt me. And I read that their motives were in a way twisted, but quite pure. They really thought that England couldn't win. And the sooner we stopped the war, the sooner we could stop bombing all our wonderful sites. So that was, you know, that was the motive, which, so I thought I'd love to write about this. So I wrote um, the first bit of what later became in Farley Field. And I showed it to my then agent. And she said to me two things. Nobody was interested in World War II, and she thought it was quite insulting that I'd write about the British being happy in England when um, everybody was suffering so much on the continent. So I put it aside for years. I got a new agent, by the way, and um, it was only when I felt I was, I was comfortable enough in my career that I could branch out and do something else that I showed it to my current agent, and she loved it. And so we had a publisher who was really interested in doing it. So I went ahead and did it. So my last few novels have been World War Two related. And I must say it's, you know, one set in Tuscany, one was set in, in Venice, um, one was set in Nice. They're all lovely places to go and do research to. Um, but um, it's been very nice to just go into someone's life for a little moment and then leave it again. So, I mean, I think that's the joy of standalones is you can, you can do things and you can kill off people if you want to at the end of a standalone. And um, so it, it's been a challenge, but really nice to just uh, dip into all these different time periods. That's amazing that your agent said that. I mean, every other book that comes my way these days is about World War II. It's, it's huge. I think it, yeah, I think it's just timing. I think this was probably around like 2001, 2002 when I, when I started this. And of course now, as you say, World War II is incredibly popular. And one of the good, with good reason, A, we can see the parallels to our own life and times. And um, we can see the dangers of Nazism. And, and B, because there are so many stories to tell. I mean, everybody sees World, World War II in a different light. You know, if you're, in Nazi Germany, if you're being bombed in England, if you're in America working in an armament factory, that everybody has a different experience. So there are many, many stories, and I don't think we're run out of them. So let's get back to Lady Georgina. Um, I gave a very brief introduction to her, and we should mention that she's in the 1930s. So although she's not yet facing World War II, uh, we are getting pretty close, and especially with the Prince of Wales, whom we will be talking about a little bit later, uh, Nazism is definitely on the horizon, so there is a connection there too. Um, tell us more about her. How did she come to be the heroine of this series? In a funny way, actually. My publisher at the time was saying to me, we can't really break you out unless you write us a big, dark, standalone novel. So I kept thinking, oh, um, child molesters, serial killers, terrorists poisoning the water supply. And then you'd turn on television and it was all dark. And I thought, do I really want to spend six months in darkness like this? So I dug my heels in and I thought, what would be the most unlikely sleuth I could come up with? And I thought, well, how about if she was royal? Wouldn't that be fun? But she was penniless. And it's the 1930s, such a wonderful time to write about, poised between two world wars, but this sort of time 
of great contrasts of haves and have-nots, of communism, fascism, the Prince of Wales, Noel Coward, all these wonderful people waiting to be written about. So I started writing in the first person, and I wrote that first chapter exactly as it is in the first book, which was actually called Her Royal Spiness. I wrote it and um, uh, I showed it to my agent and she loved it. And we showed it to the editor who went, no, 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 that wasn't what we wanted at all. So it was put out to bids at other publishers and um, uh, it was taken by another publisher and it's done really well. So, of course, the first publisher for a while didn't want to acknowledge it at all. And then they started muttering about, well, that other series. But anyway, so uh, Lady Georgie, I think she beca- she came to me instantly. And although we're different, I've had people who've written to me and said, oh, I always thought you and Lady Georgie were the same age, which I find is very flattering. But even though we're different in age, I think, you know, I identify with her very strongly, sort of slightly insecure about herself, slightly clumsy when she's under stress. Um, wanting to please, wanting to be liked, you know, all those things that one does as a young woman. Um, and the thing that's fun is to really to be in her world, that world of British aristocrats, and to poke gentle fun at the British class system. Uh, yes, uh, I mean, that, that's a lot of, I mean, there are so many fun things uh, about her. Um, one of the other long-running characters is Darcy O'Mara, uh, who uh, people who love your series will uh, identify him immediately. They know who he is and what he means to Georgie. But what would you like other people, our listeners, uh, to know about him as a person and a personality? Aha. Uh-huh. Well, um, I've had so many people ask me about his name. When you called him Darcy, were you thinking of anybody else? Yes. <laughs> and, and, of co- and of course, you know, I say whenever I write about him, I see Colin Firth coming out of that lake. So, <laughs> um, you know, he definitely, Mr. Darcy, was was a great um, inspiration for that. What I started off with him was that we didn't know if he was good or bad. He was a character that was enigmatic and could have been dangerous for Georgie. And I liked writing that. I love writing when you don't quite know whether you can trust somebody or what they really are. Um, and so for several books, we didn't know if Darcy was... Um, what what he did. He was secretive. He lived a life that Georgie didn't know about. And that was really fun to, now we know that he's a really good guy. I mean, I have to say he's still a hunk. He's, he's um, you know, he's your fantasy guy in many ways. And that's why Georgie couldn't believe for a long time that he was actually interested in her. Um, because he's he's been a playboy. He's sort of had any woman he wants. And I think we now know that he does some sort of secret work for the British government. Um, but he's he's fun to write about because the, there was always that element of danger with him. It's funny, when I first was writing the series and I first met my editor, we were in New York together, and she said, um, I have um, I have something I'd like to ask of you. And I thought, oh, God, she wants me to rewrite the second half of this book. And she leaned closer and she said, could Darcy take his shirt off more? So <laughs> I think that I think that indicates how I see him. <laughs> it does. And there's still a, a slight ambiguity in, the, ambiguity in the sense that other characters assume that he's not going to be faithful to Georgie, that he's, that yeah. he's still playing the field, basically. Um, yeah, I mean, that is true. And I mean, I think Georgie, because she was naive and because she was sheltered and grew up in a castle in Scotland, I think she's, that's been a worry for her. I think she's fine now, but for, for a while, I think that was a worry to her that 
could she trust him? Would he stay faithful? Because as we know, within their type of person in the 1930s, among aristocrats, there was an awful lot of, of, of unfaithfulness going on. You know, bed hopping was a sport for them. Right, exactly. So the idyllic scene from the opening can't last. Oh, there would no, be no story and there would be no fun, <laughs> no. especially no murder mystery. Um, Georgie decides to invite a few guests to celebrate her first Christmas in her new home. So give us the setup. What happens next? Well, Georgie has luckily inherited a really nice property, you know, having lived, um, having been homeless, really, when she left her castle in Scotland, um, and having not known what will happen, she's now her godfather has let her live in his very beautiful home. And so she has this nice property. And she says to Darcy, we could have a real Christmas house party here. I could invite all the people I love. I could invite my grandfather, my mother, Belinda, my best friend, Zuzu, their dear friend. And it would be such fun. So she sends out lots of invitations. Um, the only problem is that everybody turns her down. They all say, oh, sorry, I've already agreed to go somewhere else. So she's left with her dear grandfather, who's a Cockney retired policeman, and he lives in London. And so she's able to persuade him to come down for the good fresh air of the country. But it's just, just those. So it's obviously not going to be a rip-roaring house party like she imagined. Yes, I love her grandfather. He's one of my favorite characters. <laughs> yeah. um, but at first, even her mother, Claire, um, turns her down. Uh, and that gets back a little bit to what we were talking about earlier. Uh, what is going on with Claire at the moment? Well, unfortunately, Claire's mother um, has been many things to many men on six of seven continents, I think is the way one can describe it. Um, and she's currently... Uh, with um, a German industrialist, Max von Stroheim, who's very rich and is getting even richer as he's actually supplying arms to the Nazis, so we, we think. But anyway, um, she was um, uh, she can't leave Max over Christmas. And, and uh, so she, she says to Georgie, no, I can't leave Max. Sorry, I've got to stay with him in Germany. As a result, uh, Georgie is both pleased and dismayed when she receives another invitation from Darcy's Aunt Ermintrude, uh, one that includes her unwelcome guests, uh, and the unwelcome guests being her sister-in-law Fig and her brother, the Duke of Ranaf. Let, let's start with them. They have a somewhat contentious relationship. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. I mean, uh, Georgie's brother is, is quite nice but clueless. He's one of those bumbling aristocrats that one comes across. But he's married to Fig, whose real name is Hilda, and um, she is she absolutely dislikes Georgie, and she's she's very stingy, she's very critical, and um, she's just not a pleasant person. She's the sort of person you come across sometimes who finds the negative in everything, and so she would be Georgie's least least favorite person to spend Christmas with. However, the boiler has burst in Castle Rannoch. And as Fig says, you've got this lovely new home with not lots of nice heating in it. So we thought we'd come and spend Christmas with you. So Georgie can't really say no. Um, but um, so Fig and she adores her, her, her niece and nephew. So that's nice. And she quite likes her brother. But the thought of Fig over Christmas really is a bit much. So they all trundle after Aunt Ermintrude. And who is Aunt Ermintrude? What do we need to know oh, about yes. her? Well, just when they're thinking that she's got to have this Christmas alone with Fig and Binky, they get an invitation from Darcy's Aunt Ermintrude. And Aunt uh, Georgie's never met her, but she's this strange woman. She sent them this ghastly painting for a wedding present. 
And Georgie thinks of her as this artsy type who lives in Yorkshire. However, it turns out that she's now moved to Norfolk, very close to, oh, actually on the edge of the Sandringham Estate, which is obviously the royal house in um, Norfolk. And it transpires that she was once lady-in-waiting to Queen Mary, and they've remained close friends. Georgie finds this very hard to believe because she didn't think she was that sort of person at all. However, Aunt Ermintrude says, I realize now I've been alone too much and I'd love to have young company over Christmas. And what's more, Georgiana, I was talking to the Queen and she really misses your company. She would love to have you close by, especially at this very difficult time for herself and the King. We we know that the King actually is very ill and is not going to live much longer. Um, so Sandringham is, is his favorite place and they go there for Christmas. So um, she she wants to have this house party. And Georgie says, oh, golly, do we really have to go? And Darcy says, well, it sounds to me like it's a veiled invitation from the Queen that she wants you there. And if you've read any of the other books in the series, you will know that the Queen from time to time has these little assignments for Georgie. Um, and um, they're not always easy assignments. Um, uh, but um, Georgie really can hardly say no. So she says, well, actually, it'd be better than being alone with Fig and Binky. So I suppose we all better go. Yes, um, that brings me to uh, one of the central things, actually, of the entire series, um, because Georgie is is often charged with Queen Mary in previous, uh, by Queen Mary in previous books um, to figure out what's going on in various circumstances, mostly in, in uh, involving uh, who, the Prince of Wales, who's still known as David, but who will soon become Edward VIII. Um, the visit obviously turns up, excuse me, a few bodies. And I don't know if you want to tell us about any of that. I don't, I hesitate with mystery series to put too much uh, on yeah, the I table. Think that's a spoiler. I think we'll stay away from the bodies. Yes. Okay. So tell us instead about um, the historical background. You mentioned that King George V is on his deathbed, basically. Um, and that's creating a lot of anxiety for obvious reasons. But December 1935 is a difficult time for the royal family in general. So what is what is going on there? Well, yes, uh, we know that the king now is very ill, and actually he won't. He will die at the beginning of January. So we're we're in his last days, really. And Queen Mary wants to make everything nice for him. You know, um, she wants his last days to be happy. The big problem is with David. Um, in that he will not give up Mrs. Simpson. Uh, the interesting thing to me was that nobody, the, the public in England, knew nothing about Mrs. Simpson because the newspapers had a pact to keep her name out of the newspapers. She was well known in other places. The newspapers in America or on the continent had already had a, a great field day with her. But in England, the average person did not know that Mrs. Simpson existed. And the Queen is very worried that um, he will not give her up when he becomes king and it will be a tremendous scandal, etc. Um, in the past, she's asked Georgie to spy to see whether they've got secretly married. Um, we don't actually know whether she's she really is divorced from Mr. Simpson yet. In fact, in real life, in the true history, she's the divorce is going to come through this year, right before she uh, David asks her to marry him. But um, so we don't know. Sometimes she's gone off and the Queen's asked Georgie to say, you know, they're not getting secretly married, are they? So the Queen is terrified about this. And the reason that she wants, I think this is not a spoiler too much to say, is that this time 
she is concerned that uh, there's something bad going on at Sandringham, and in fact, the Prince of Wales's life might be in danger. So I won't say any more on that because it don't want to be a spoiler, but um, that that's her reason for, for chatting with Georgie this time. But also more generally, I mean, I, I think most people must be aware from following uh, the situation with uh, Charles and Diana that there is a real problem from the viewpoint of the British royals with Wallace Simpson. I mean, I'm guessing a lot of people know, but just in case some people don't, can you explain why it's such an issue that uh, David wants to marry Wallace? Uh, the main issue is that the king is head of the Church of England. The Church of England does not allow divorce. Wallace Simpson is a twice-divorced woman from America with a dubious past. She is totally unsuitable to be queen. She's been mistress to various people. She's been married twice. Um, and um, she, would, she would just not what, be what you wanted for queen. And also, because David would be the head of the Church of England, that puts him in an untenable situation that he cannot, um, he cannot marry her. It's quite remarkable that they managed to keep it secret in the press. I mean, I can't imagine that happening now. <laughs> well, it's very interesting, isn't it? I mean, when you think of how the royal family, well, Charles and Diana, how, you know, how they were hounded and how Meghan and Harry have been hounded. I mean, the press, the, the, the press now is so intrusive that, as we know, it drove Diana to her death. So um, it's a huge turnaround. But the press in those days was run a lot by Lord Beaverbrook, who owned the Daily Express and various, and of course, the Times and the sort of gentlemanly sort of newspapers would not have done it. But even the tabloids, even, you know, the Sun and the Mirror did not mention her until David came out and said, this is the woman I want to marry. And then, of course, then it was in all the headlines. Yes, my grandfather actually worked for Lord Beaverbrook. He was the managing editor of the Daily Express eventually. Oh, I mean, really? Oh. Yeah. <laughs> he started as a, you know, a copy boy or something. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so that's a name that I remember often uh, encountering in my childhood. You mentioned that, uh, that the secrecy interested you, but is there something about the relationship between David and Wallace that particularly cause that particularly interests you so that you featured it because it's been in quite a few books now at least five or six I think well she's a wonderful character too because she's so obnoxious I mean uh I never you know and I I never really liked her but then when I did the research for this series I realized I didn't like her she she's a very self-centered very spiteful woman she loves poking fun at others she has been so rude to the then Duke of York and Duchess of York, who became who became George the Sixth and Queen Elizabeth. Um, she called her the dowdy, dow, dowdy Duchess, and she also referred to her as Cookie because she says she looks like someone's cook. And of him, you know, he had this terrible stutter, and she would make fun of him at parties and every she think she'd say, "What, what, what, what? Uh, 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 who? Guess who I am?" You know, and everybody would roar with laughter. Um, so she was this unkind person. She made fun of, um, she didn't like Princess Elizabeth. She called her Shirley Temple because she was so good. They liked Margaret because Margaret was spunky. But um, uh, so she was a difficult person. The other thing was in those, well, even still today, if you're a friend of the royal family, even if you're a close friend, you don't call them by their name. You call them sir and ma'am. Um, and um, uh she would call him, she would snap her fingers and say, David, come over here. 
And of course, what I've enjoyed doing in my books is Georgie's mummy is a very a v- former Cockney, but now having been a duchess, um, now knows how to move in the world, but a very spunky, feisty woman. And she will not let Mrs. Simpson get the better of us. So those two have this wonderfully contentious relationship, which I really enjoy writing, in which they each try and score points off the other. So, you know, she's a she's a fabulous character to have into any of the stories because she brings this this level of bitchiness and tension with her wherever she goes. Yeah, she is wonderful. And I'm glad that you mentioned Claire's reaction to her because that is one of the really fun things about the novel is watching Claire give her hair <laughs> come up. Because <laughs> yeah. yeah. Wallace is quite nasty to Georgie, although Georgie doesn't really take it. I mean, she she does fight back, but she doesn't fight back the way that Claire does. No, well, Georgie's learned to. I think to start with, she was in a way overawed by Mrs. Simpson because Mrs. Simpson's a very powerful character. But now Georgie now has stood on her own feet and has a nice life of her own. I think she can give as good as she um, take, you know, give as good as she takes from Mrs. Simpson. Um, and of course, Claire is an act, a former actress too. We didn't mention that when we were talking yeah, about yeah, her. Claire, yeah, Claire was a, you know, a really top level actress before. This is what happened to a lot of actresses. They married nobility. So she married Georgie's father as a second wife. The first wife was the impeccable one of good pedigree who gave birth to Binky, and then she unfortunately died, um, probably because she had to live in a very cold Scottish castle. But um, uh, And then he married again, and, and he, he, he married Claire. And she liked being, she liked the thought of being a duchess, but she didn't like living in a Scottish castle. So she did what some other women did. She bolted, um, and she, uh, you know, she left when Georgie was two, left Georgie with the nanny, and off she went. And since then, she has bolted many times with many men, which makes kind of an interesting character to write about. Yes, I, I did notice the resemblance to the um, the Nancy Metzford character with the bolter. Is that deliberate? Um, well, uh, I mean, the, yes, I love Nancy Metzford's books. And obviously, you know, I knew about the bolter. She wasn't the original. There really was a real life one, Edina Sackville, who um, uh, was then, if you read the book, um, Love and Death Among the Cheetahs. She was one of the people who came in that story when they go out to to Kenya in Africa. But she was the original bolter because she left her husband back in the I think the teens, not even the twenties, and then went off with a series of men. So Nancy's Nancy's bolter is 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 based on her, and my bolter ha- does homage to Nancy. I think <laughs> that sounds <laughs> a, sort of a generation of bolters here. <laughs> yeah, the generation of bolters. Yes. <laughs> What would you like people to take away from God Rest Ye Royal Gentlemen and its predecessors? Um, well, I think uh, the whole series, I, I think it, it's, I wouldn't call them, I think it does them a disservice to call them cozy mysteries or to call them historical mysteries. I think they're, um, they're a fun romp, uh, which pokes gentle fun at the British class system. And they're more a following of Georgie's life and, and her, her, set, her circle, her set, um, there happen to be a few bodies along the way, but the solving the mystery in most of the books is not the overwhelming, uh, not the overwhelming theme. In some of them, it has been. There's one in which Darcy's father was accused of murder, and that was a, really the driving force behind the whole book. But in some of them, it's just you know the fun circumstances in which Georgie finds herself. The other thing that's interesting too is that these are light-hearted books. But I don't think we ever forget the serious nature of the world going on in the background. 
we're well aware of the rise of Hitler through through these books. When we started, Hitler was that funny little man with the moustache in Germany who nobody took seriously. Now we're coming up to 1936, and I think we now know that Ger- that that Hitler is very serious. Um, so, and we we've got communism, fascism, all those sort of things lurking in the background. So I think we're always aware that life is not going to be smooth sailing forever. Yes, and in fact, uh, this is something I had meant to bring up and forgot. Uh, David and Wallace are actually quite uh, sympathetic to Hitler. Uh, that's um, That was something that really shocked me when I did the research on this. You know, sometimes you're told about things, but you don't quite believe them. But as I did more and more of the research, yes, uh, David really thought that he'd... Um, we needed someone in England who's like Hitler to get us out of the depression and set everything straight, get everything working again, get the trains running and everything the way Hitler did. So he's a great admirer of Hitler. And of course, she's very flattered. You could easily flatter her. And when they go and see Hitler, he kisses her hand and things. So she thinks he's wonderful, too, which was one of the reasons that um, during World War Two, David was sent to be governor of the Bahamas which is nicely close to the coast of America, so that American submarines could make sure that nobody kidnapped him um, because the British were, wor- well, everybody was worried that the, the Germans would invade England and set him up as a puppet king. And in fact, he rather hoped this himself. So he was a danger. He was. I mean, it, in a way, it, he did us a favor by being so obsessed with Wallace Simpson. Do you know that Mrs. That, uh, uh, Winston Churchill, after the war, said we should erect a statue to Mrs. Simpson. If it hadn't been for her, we'd all have ended up as puppets of Germany. I think he's had a good point. Um... Yeah, yeah, yes, absolutely. Well, you know, David, I think, comes across in my books too. David was a very um, shallow, very weak character. He loved to. Be, he wanted. He wanted to be the playboy. He wanted to be. He was Peter Pan. He liked, you know, he liked to play. He liked to have the group of his set around him and they'd all talk and laugh and drink cocktails and do cocaine. He thought all that was like he didn't want to be king. And he would have been a really bad king because he was such a lightweight. Yes, he does come. That does come across in your books. Absolutely. I mean, for all the fun and games, it's it's clear that he is um, not up to the job. Shall we say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> So this novel has just come out. Uh, do you already have another one in the works? Um, well, you know, I write the two series and a standalone. Yes, Crazy Woman, look me up in a straitjacket. Um, so the next book that comes out will be the Molly Murphy one. Um, I'm about to start the new Lady Georgie book, which um, will, I suppose, come out the same time next year. And I thought it would be fun this time to send Georgie to Paris. Um, we haven't been to Paris. And um Belinda, as we know, was studying fashion design with Chanel and then inherited quite a lot of money and didn't need to study fashion design anymore. But I think she's decided that it's something she's passionate about. So she's back in Paris and invites Georgie to come and stay with her. At the same time, Darcy has to go to Paris on um, some sort of secret mission, and he's going to involve Georgie in that. So We're going to get slightly mixed up with politics in this book, but we're also involved in the fashion industry. So I think that will be a delicious mix. Oh, it sounds wonderful. I can't wait. Uh, I should mention in passing, because we didn't talk about Belinda either, that she's Georgie's best friend. Yes, she is. Yeah. And um, uh, yeah. And I think 
the reason uh, this this book is coming out late this year, which we haven't mentioned, because it is a Christmas book. I was asked to asked to write another Christmas book because I wrote one called um, The Twelve Clues of Christmas. And that that did very well. Everybody loved it. It still sells well after seven or eight years. And um, so I think I was asked to write another one. And I think what people love is that whole concept of the old English Christmas, you know, with the Yule log in the fireplace and the holly and the mistletoe around the house and the carol singers outside the door and the the flaming Christmas pudding brought in, all of those sort of things that, that associate us with that wonderful feeling of warmth and security. And then, of course, you have that, and in the middle of it, there's going to be a body. So um, I'm not going to say whose body either. No, don't tell us. <laughs> but yes, it is a Christmas novel. Um, thank you so much for sharing your time with us today, Reese. Oh, Carolyn, it's been a pleasure. Anytime. And thank you for listening to our podcast. Once again, I'm C.P. Leslie, the host of New Books and Historical Fiction, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. And today I've been talking with Rhys Bowen about God Rest Ye, Royal Gentlemen, the latest of her Lady Georgiana novels. Find out more at www.reesbowen.com. Like us on Facebook, search for NB Historical Fiction, and follow us on Twitter at New Books Histfic. If you do, you'll see each time we post a new interview. You can find out more about me and my books at www.cplesley.com, where I upload expanded posts about the interviews and in general discuss history, historical fiction, and the rapidly changing publishing industry. Goodbye until my next conversation about historical fiction on the New Books Network.